The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Hi there, good evening and welcome to The Enviro Show, the Green Green Show here on SAFM. Well, marching we are into 2015, green flag flying high. I'm Nancy Richards together with Kim Winter and with Rob Parkin. So it's the last of our holiday highlight shows and we thought what we would do is we'd take a look once again at what some of the big environmental issues are that are facing us in this year ahead. Well, many more, I have to say, than we're able to cover here right now. But we thought what we'd do is we'd take a look, not so much as the bad news and the good news, as the worrisome news and the hopeful news. So, starting off with the worrisome, there's no doubt that there's some very real concerns around the issue of fracking. And we'll be hearing once again from film director Jeffrey Barbie about his movie called The High Price of Cheap Gas. On fracking on film, we'll also be hearing about a documentary. It's called Unearthed, and it won a Green Award at the Sheffield Documentary Film Festival in the UK. We'll be hearing again from filmmaker Jolion Minar. Then on the more hopeful side, renewable energy, exemplified to an extent by wind energy. And we'll be hearing a documentary on the Jeffreys Bay wind farm called Going With The Wind. So stay with us, it's The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show. Well, the issue of fracking and the Karoo is a, a debate that seems to be so critically under-resolved. But it's not just an issue here in South Africa, it's also an issue in Botswana. The High Cost of Cheap Gas, it's the name of a documentary that's been made on the topic by director Jeffrey Barbie. And the story is thus, let me just give you a little bit of input here. The government of Botswana has admitted to granting fracking licenses in the southern African nation after a documentary exposed operational authority, operations authorities had previously denied According to the film, those uh, the high cost of cheap gas, those activities are happening in environmentally sensitive areas, including the country's Kalahari National Park, home to one of the world's largest elephant herds and a well-known tourist destination. Well, we've got Geoffrey on the line. Hi, Geoffrey. Hi, thanks for having me. Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Uh, we, we're talking to you from the point of view of a film director, uh, you know, of this particular documentary. Are you an environmentalist? Are you a film director? What is your, you know, how are you coming into this? Well, I'm a journalist, okay. and I come from rural western Colorado originally, and that is a place that one of the spots on the planet that the fracking industry carried out a lot of this research that led to this boom in natural gas. So I come from this as a, as a person who's watched this happen in their home, and now in my adopted home in southern Africa, I'm, I'm very interested to get the debate rolling here so that people can be informed. Because one thing that we found in Colorado is the better informed a community is, the cleaner the industry tends to be. And, uh, you know, I suppose we're all looking for, for black or white or a yes or no or a tick or a cross. Has it been successful in Colorado? I, I mean, however one measures success. Well, I think that, you know, that's a, that's a very loaded question. Yes. I think it's an important question because it also defines what is important and to whom. You know, if you're making money from this industry and you own the rights underneath your own farm, um, then maybe you're getting some benefit from it. You might, and I have spoken to many people who feel that the benefit they're getting maybe doesn't outweigh the, 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 the problems that it's caused on their farms. But nevertheless, there's, a, there's definitely a debate there to be had. And here in Southern Africa, though, the government owns the mineral rights underneath people's land. So that particular direct benefit of cash coming into a local economy through the pockets of farmers and landowners 
is not a debate that's relevant here in Southern Africa because that will not be happening. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, how successful has it been? It depends how you measure success. I suppose perhaps a better question would be how safe has it been? Has it polluted the water sources as uh, are, there are concerns here in South Africa? I'm, I'm still with Colorado at the moment. Has it polluted water sources? What have the outcomes been? How has it been felt in the environment around, surrounding? Well, I think it's important to understand when you're having a debate about it here in Southern Africa that in the United States, this industry has been offered by the government a very strong level of advocacy and protection, which means that, for instance, if you were going to build a house on a river in Colorado and you were going to discharge the sewage from your house into the river, you would need a license to do that, and most likely you would not get one. But in fact, the fracking industry is not bound by these laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, or the Community Right to Know Act. And that's a loophole that was built into the 2005 energy bill passed by the Dick Cheney by Dick Cheney and his friends. It's called the Bush Cheney Energy Bill. So we don't have a lot of data in the United States about these activities. And people say this has been going on for so long and so safely. But in fact, as a journalist looking critically at this issue, it's very important to understand what is the fact, not just what does the industry science say. But what does independent science say? And only now, with some of the new sort of, I would say, scrutiny that the Obama administration has given the fracking industry, are, is new science coming out about this. And the great thing about the film that we've just produced, in my opinion, is that we follow very carefully the science, these independent researchers in the United States. And it's clear particularly where I come from in Garfield County. Parachute Creek is a large acknowledged natural gas spill. They spilled um, tons and tons, in fact, thousands of tons of benzene into Parachute Creek, and they have still not cleaned it up. 200, well, I don't know what you'd say, and so I think it's about $20 million, so I believe that's 200 million rand later. It's still a mess. So it's not that this is the every creek is polluted in my area, but these things have happened, and why have they happened, and how can you prevent them from happening in South Africa is really one of the sort of ten tenets of this documentary. Yes, and I'm sure it's all very country-specific, all very region-specific. And, you know, as I quoted there from your website, um, what we're looking at in Botswana is that the, the fracking activity is happening in very, very environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, you know, it's the Kalahari National Park. It's a home to one of the world's largest elephant herds. So it's, it's Well, actually, the Central Kalahari Game Reserve is, is not home to the elephant herds. And I think that it's gotten a little confused in some of the reports in the media because they're fracking in three different parks. Okay. So one of the parks, Chobe National Park, is a national park, and there are fracking licenses, gas exploration licenses there right now. And there is drilling on the edges, which we know about because we went and saw it. And that's the area. Thirty to 60,000 elephants move from the Chobe complex over to Zimbabwe and then back on a yearly cycle. And yes, indeed, that... That is a very sensitive area, but also the Central Kalahari Game Reserve is home to the San Bushman people. And the Central Kalahari Game Reserve was under lots and lots of licenses when we went and did the research for this film. And we know for a fact, we've spoken to some of the drillers, that they were drilling inside the park already. So 
these things are happening, and as far as we could ascertain, there wasn't a lot of community or public participation. You mentioned three different parts, so Chobe National Park, Central Kalahari Game Reserve, and the third part? Uh, Kahalahari Transfrontier okay. Conservation Area. And a Transfrontier Conservation Area is a national park that spans borders. So the Transfrontier Conservation Area there is connected to the Hemsbach National Park here in South Africa. So, you know, you're, you're talking about developing, and I've seen the licenses, there's many of them, at least 25, inside of the, of the Botswana side of a national park that spans these two countries' borders. I would be very curious to find out what uh, the National Parks of South Africa thinks mm -hmm. about these uh, industrial activities taking place in a protected area that they share. Extraordinary. So it, as far as you know, it wasn't put forward for public participation, public uh, approval at all? It's no, it wasn't. I think the Botswana government has been good in the last week about coming sort of clean with it. But I would also say that some of the reports in the press haven't quite got the story right, because actually the government of Botswana did not hide this, but they also did not tell anyone. Mm -hmm. So there is a difference, because if you're actively trying to keep a secret, that's willful. But in this case, they were putting stuff up on their website, but it was very hard to find. I mean, I found, in fact, the, the prospecting license map that led to this revelation on the Botswana government website. It wasn't easy to find, but it was there. So was it a big secret? Not really. Was it an open secret? Definitely. So they've just been a little bit economical with their, with their publicity. I think so. Mm. And, you know, that's very typical of how these operations have happened in western Colorado. Usually the first time a farmer ever knows that there's been a license issued, granted, or, or any type of interaction with them is the day that the actual company comes to their farm. Sure. There's, no, uh, there's no paper trail that arrives that you can fight before that. And this seems to be modus operandi for the industry. And I'd like to separate the industry very well from the Botswana government, because the Botswana government is doing the very best they can, and they're very interested in jobs, and they, I believe, in my opinion, after speaking with them this week, that this was done with the best interests of Botswanans in mind, and maybe not with all the facts behind exactly what the industry was doing on the ground. Except that one might have imagined that it would be their job to find out, get all the information. But it, interesting that you say that the industry itself um, tends to be a little bit covert, which suggests a sort of lack of transparency, which su suggests that they got something to hide. Well, I think that you could construe that from that type of behavior. However, um, the industry is also very good at making sure that those types of statements aren't completely correct either. Mm -hmm. So, and so I would be very tempted to say that, in fact, they do their very best to appear to be transparent, but keep in mind that they, have a, they, they are interested in money and they are interested in the energy that they produce re bringing revenue to their shareholders, whereas somebody like the Botswana government is interested, hopefully, and, and we know this from the past with their great conservation history, they're interested in the welfare of the people and the animals. And maybe they just simply did not know mm. that this type of activity could cause these types of effects that we're talking about here. 
difficult, isn't it? Because soon it starts to happen in one country and everybody can see the, those who are pro-fracking can say, well, it's happening over there and it seems to be not a problem. But let's just get back to your film, The High Cost of Cheap Gas. Obviously, you're quite critical in some way. Has the fracking already started and what angle have you taken on the documentary? So what we tried to do was we tried to look, and we've been working with some very good professional researchers looking at the, the actual science that is independent. So this means that the science itself is not connected in any way to the oil and gas industry. Sometimes some of the science is funded by the U.S. government, and it could be argued that there's a connection there with the oil and gas industry. But by and large, we looked at a review of this literature that's in the public eye, and we said, where do we know what are the real economics of shale gas and coal bed methane? How do they affect the communities, and who has done that research? And I think many people would be very surprised to find out that in the United States, there is only two researchers who are independent, who have done large, multi-state analysis of the economics behind this. And the economics that they discovered is quite different, as you would expect, from what the industry has been, been put forward. And often these industry reports look like they're from a university, but many times these reports are actually funded in part by the industry itself, much like the econometrics report issued by the University of Cape Town and Tony Twine about the shale gas extraction in the Karoo. And that report has come under fire in the last few months because it seems to have overblown the employment figures quite a lot, maybe in some cases by as much as 150 to 250 percent. And then we find that that's quite typical. So as a journalist, it's very important to look carefully at the facts and then to ascertain what facts can be looked carefully at because they are independent. And although it might sound like the high cost of cheap gas is a polarizing idea, it in fact isn't because this is being billed as this cheap gas and renewable energy, or sorry, a clean bridging fuel to renewable energy. But in fact, what we're finding is it seems to be the same old oil story just kind of resold and repackaged. Now, I'm not sure that there's no place fracking shouldn't happen, and we're not saying in the film that this is an activity that should never happen. But we are trying to point out that the independent research really needs to be identified by independent, good journalists out there working. And what we wanted to do was, in the film, introduce these good researchers, University of Colorado, the American National um, um, the American NOAA, which is one of the, uh, the big research arms of the U.S. government looking into the atmosphere. And the things that we found were quite startling. For instance, everybody talks about water and fracking. But in fact, there's 45 years of air quality analysis that's been going on all over the world that is the reason why we have catalytic converters on cars. We have spent $350 trillion over the last 50 years bringing down ozone and particulates called volatile organic compounds. And we have good data about this from all over the world, and everybody compares their air quality to L.A. But it might surprise some people when they see our film that, in fact, the air quality issues around fracking are much more severe, it seems, than the water quality issues, because the air quality issues are much more easy to identify when people start looking for them. And we have such good data going back so long on air quality because it's such a big deal. And, you know, in L.A., we've brought down 
the, the particulate matter, the ozone, the volatile organic compounds, to a fifth of what they were 35 years ago, while we've increased the population there by double. But there's a valley in Utah that the University of Colorado went and did a study on, and that valley has ozone and particulate and volatile organic compound levels 240 times higher than L.A. Mm. And the only industry operating there is the gas industry. So these are very severe effects that affect all of us, not if you live next to a gas well, but if you live anywhere on Earth, because methane and these chemicals are also greenhouse gases of the most potent sort. Is there, three questions very briefly, is there anything to be learned for South Africa by seeing your film? How is it possible to see your film? And what's the feeling on amongst the people there in Botswana about the fracking? Is there sort of a very much of awareness? So, so I think the, the first question is, um, I'll, I'll start with the third one. In Botswana, <laughs> there is some awareness now. I've been on radio a couple of times talking about this, but it's only just starting to kick up. And people are starting to hear about this. And in fact, three days ago in, uh, in the Botswana parliament, they debated this issue on the floor for the very first time. So those are big steps. And I think the Botswana government is also learning a lot. They've reached out to us, and we certainly are happy to share any and all of our research with either the South African government or the Botswana government, or in fact any concerned individuals in this, this region. Which then leads me to your second question. The high cost of cheap gas will be on tour here in South Africa in the upcoming year. We will also be looking for a cinema release that will at least cover, hopefully, the seven major population centers in the country. And the last question about South Africa, this film actually starts in the Karoo, mm. and it, it really follows the story in South Africa and the big players, the, the lawyers who are going to fight this, the, the sort of big companies like Shell, they weigh in and they have a lot to say about what you know, this industry is going to look like in the Karoo. So this is really a, an important film, in my opinion, for anyone who's interested in this to learn a little bit more about fracking and to be introduced to this independent science that tells us a lot more than we knew and certainly than I knew a year ago when I started making this film. Well, three good answers to, to the questions, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. And I think there's a huge amount of interest and I think there's a huge amount of confusion. So it sounds like your film would certainly shed some light on the whole science and the whole industry. Thank you very much. I'm going to give out your blog spot uh, details if anybody would like to know more, but I think we might have a link on our Facebook page. Yes, we do. Yeah, and, it, you know, it's just the high cost of cheap gas at Facebook. That's our page. Okay, excellent. Thanks very much. Thank Take you. care. Good luck. Have eh? a good afternoon. Thank you. Bye. Jeffrey Barbie. Well, if you'd like to know more, you can check his Facebook page. It's The High Cost of Cheap Gas. And if you want to check his blog spot, it's Jeffrey, J E double F R E Y B A R B double E dot blogspot dot com. The Enviro Show on SAFM. For interviews and analysis that move markets, politicians, and the nation, listen to SAFM Current Affairs. This is where we have to wrap it up. Cosas? We are strongly against the publication of metric results. And the Bill of Rights is clear that if you want your private information to be seen by the world, you must share it with the world. Bumelan? Newspapers benefit in the long term because you have a culture of reading. 
without people reading newspapers, then newspapers won't survive. Much as the newspapers make money, it's good for society to read. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm going to end with a tweet from Perry Rakoma who says, congrats to all the matriculants who made it. I also support those who didn't make it to persevere. Their time will come to shine. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Wendy Luhabe, Felicia Mabusa Subtle, Kathy Kathwada, Sheikhs Mashaba, Terry Petto, Chad McClough. Find out who's next in the spotlight. Weekdays at 3 on Afternoon Talk. We're going to stay with fracking on film here on the Enviro Show because last year a South African filmmaker by the name of Jollyon Minar won a Green Award at the Sheffield Documentary Film Festival. It was for her documentary called Unearthed. Well, I spoke to her soon after she came back from the UK and asked her if the festival had a specifically green focus. Um, Sheffield is one of the biggest documentary festivals in the world and they mm-hmm. host a variety of different themes and genres. And we were very happy to have our world premiere at such a prestigious event. Uh, we won in the green category, so any documentaries that were covering environmental issues from across the world, uh, we were nominated and, and then came home with the trophy. And we're the first South African documentary to do so. So uh, we're all very, very excited. And wow. it's, it's a great boost. So you premiered it there, so it hasn't yet been shown here in South Africa? It was. We premiered, oh, I think it was last week, it's all happened so quickly. We premiered there and then we flew back straight away for our national uh, debut at the Encounters Film Festival, which happened this last weekend. So uh, there have been three screenings in South Africa so far. Well, I must make sure that I get the ASAP. Unearthed, tell us about it. Fracking, hot topic at the moment. I imagine you've been working on this for quite some time if you put together a film. That's right. Yeah, definitely a hot, uh, hot controversial topic mm, in some very. places. I started researching this about two or three years ago uh, when I stumbled across the fracking plans. I am from the Karoo. I was, I, I grew up there, but I was always quite frustrated by the lack of information on the topic at that stage, or you know, still today. It's, quite a heated topic and I, I remember you know being quite frustrated that people seem to be taking sides without really having done the research or South Africans were kind of left in the dark um, trying to understand this this new technology that was pioneered in, in the United States um, so I did some research into it but I, I was always quite optimistic about it coming from the crew actually I, I thought that you know it was something that the, that the people in the crew deserved any kind of development uh, that was until I was able to go to the United States um, to cross-check the research that I've been doing in South Africa, uh, you know, going to communities that are living in gas drilling areas, speaking to the scientists behind the fracking technology, speaking to members of government in the U.S., and 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 uncovered the other side of the story, um, you know, and then, and then coming home and, and having to swallow your optimism and, and tell people about what you saw in the U.S., Sure. That sounds like quite a tough call to be making a film with one frame of mind. And, you know, the research is a whole journey of discovery. It means that you would have to be very careful about your footage, you know, what you're shooting, how you're shooting it, because you need to have an approach. Absolutely. It was, you know, it's, it's, I know it is a combination of about three years of work. It was uh, five months of filming in the U.S., about a year of filming in South Africa. We also filmed in the United Kingdom and in Canada because um, I've always been committed to speaking to every single side of the debate. And the, the film also features 
people in gas drilling areas to um, you know big uh, CEOs of, of well-known uh, oil and gas corporations. I've always been committed to really getting to the bottom of it objectively and speaking to everyone that's involved. And as you said, I mean, you know, I came home, or at the end of it, we we sat on top of about 15 terabytes of footage and information um, to really help us make a, a feature film that's that's rounded and 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 takes the entire debate into consideration. Mm, that must have been an editing job in a half. It's like a, <laughs> yeah. a PhD. Did the people that you spoke to, was everybody willing to talk? Was everybody informed? Because as you say, there's a lot of uh, grey areas. Not everybody's exactly sure about it. And it kind of depends. You know, money's involved quite a lot here. Uh, was everybody very clear about what they, what they knew and what they wanted to say? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that, you know, some, some aspects are, are easier to research and easier to access than others. I, I was really grateful to meet with the, um, you know, many engineers and, and scientists behind the technology who actually, you know, spent time uh, working with the industry to develop the fracking technology, but have now stepped back to caution against it. And I was quite surprised, you know, that the members of of the science world, but also, you know, previous um employees of, of these big corporations who were so grateful for my time and grateful that I, you know, would, would listen to them and, 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 and take their story, uh, you know, back to the Karoo, but also take it to all the other countries right now considering fracking. They're trying to voice their concerns uh, amidst, you know, bombardment of, of really powerful PR campaigns. And I was quite struck that they were really grateful for a South African, uh, you know, filmmaker and journalist going there on her own and, and, and you know, documenting um, their stories. But then on the other side of the coin, it was a real challenge to uh, get a full picture of what was happening in the gas drilling communities because what happens, and, and this is something that I noticed, you know, we've, that I focused on because it's a real handbrake for anyone trying to get the, the full picture is... Um, the prevalence of non-disclosure agreements signed with any families or members of the public who have been impacted by gas drilling operations. And that essentially means that those people are no longer able to speak about what has happened to them, uh, and, and in most cases their statistic disappears. And, and that was really why I had to spend so much time going from door to door in, in, in the communities in the United States to try and get a, a real understanding of how many people had been in- impacted, what had happened to them, trying to piece together, you know, missing data in many cases. So, you know, in some, in some areas people are so willing and, and grateful to share their stories, and in some cases it's, it's trying to piece together what had happened uh, in order to understand... Mm, between the lines. Or, you know, yeah, read between the lines, and, um, you know, then trying to understand what that could mean for a place like the Karoo. Just thinking that there must be many issues that are run parallel between what's going on in the states and what's happening here, except that we're way behind. You know, we've got we've got their example to to look at and see all the consequences. But here in South Africa, did you know? There, as I said, quite a lot of grey areas. There seem to be a lot of decisions being made, um, but not a lot of information being passed on. Did you manage to speak to any of the big decision makers here in South Africa to hear that to, give, to get any convincing arguments about how this is a good thing? Sure. I, you know, with the film finished now, luckily it's given me more leverage to go back to members of government and, and continue my meetings. I've, you know, throughout the production of the film, I've always been contributing to articles and, and re- sharing my research along the way. And, you know, we're, I've got some meetings lined up in the next few weeks to go back and, and have some screenings with different departments. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it is, as, as you, you know, you, you spoke about it earlier to Professor Winkler, I mean, South Africa and, and the world at large is a crossroads right now, and we're, and we're caught between 
the economy and the environment and, and trying to solve the real the realities, you know, of post-2008 and, and having to uh, get people to work and, and, and get lights switched on in South Africa. Um, so you can understand the real political pressure for anyone in power right now to support something like fracking yeah. because on the ground it means that that party represents development. And um, the question is just, you know, is, is fracking the right kind of development for the crew and also for, you know, future energy policies of South Africa. Um, so it is, it is a very tricky debate, a very sensitive one, um, but that doesn't mean that we should shy away from it. I think we need to look at all the energy options available to us and, and really make sure that we're moving ahead in the right direction. Mm. Contentious here, contentious in the States, and certainly no less contentious in the UK, where you were, where you won this award. Uh, I think there's been a, a very big hue and cry about it. What's the, did you see a lot of parallels there? Were people interested to see how your film sort of related to what they were undergoing there? Absolutely. We've been blown away. You know, we were just, just sold-out audiences in the UK because it's exactly the same scenario. You know, the, the questions that we're asking are the questions that they're asking. And, you know, I know it really allows you an in-depth uh, glimpse into what's happening on the other side in the US, what's happening on the other side of the glitzy commercials that were being sold, you know, meeting people on the ground with severe water and air contamination, severe health impacts, uh, really, you know, making sure the other side of the story is told and, and not also respecting the people in the U.S., you know, many of the community members are just so grateful that you're going to ensure that their story isn't repeated on anyone. So, you know, we're overwhelmed and still so many screening requests from across the world right now because there are so many Karoos out there. You know, there's so many people, um, there's so many governments considering something like shale gas. It's yeah. a new sexy energy option from Wall Street. So, um, yeah, you know, and, this, I, I and Earth really does come at a, at a, at a time where it's... Um, Many people are looking for it and, and the, the research that it, that it brings to the table. Yes, I think I saw on your Facebook, it was either on your Facebook page or on your website, somebody requesting, I can't remember what part of the world it was, but somebody requesting that you go and screen your movie over there. But the most important thing is that we get to see it here. Yes. Um, and the, perhaps, you know, outside of the all the documentary film festivals, which a whole lot of people are not able to get to, it needs to get out there. You, you need to take a copy to the Karoo. Absolutely. And we're really excited. We're kicking off. I'm actually busy uh, planning all the, the, the things right now. Uh, we're going to the Karoo in the, in the next month or so. Uh, we've been very grateful for it. Uh, you know, people come together with sponsorships and helping us get to the Karoo with the solar-powered screenings in some places, uh, getting to the people who, who deserve the film and who, who need that information first. Um, from there, we, we're back at the Durban International Film Festival, mm. and from there, it was back to all the independent cinemas in the, in the country cities. There's also a TV version coming out, and we're also relaunching our, uh, our website and the online channel to make all of the footage and the research open source. So that's available to everyone across the world and to be able to access that as well. Well, certainly you've been doing your homework, haven't you? <laughs> all the hard work you've put in over the last three years, it sounds like it's paying off. Um, you mentioned your website there. Is it un-earthed.com? That's right, okay. www.un-earth.com. Super, fantastic. Well, Jolene, well done. Um, great on that, but it seems like your work has just begun. So keep it up, the good work, and we look forward to seeing it very, very soon. Thanks Thank a lot. You. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. It's Thank my you. pleasure. Jolene Minar, well, how's that? Now, filmmaker, and her movie's called Unearthed. If you'd like to check it out on the, well, at least you can't necessarily see the film on the website, but check out the website and you can read more about it. It's www.un-earthed.com. Dot com unhyphenearthed.com The Enviro Show Bongi, it's me. <gasps> Andy!
Andrew, thank goodness. You know, I was so worried. I heard on the news there was another bombing. It, it's okay. I, I'm okay. I wasn't on duty. I was so scared. I know. I'm sorry. I, I love you so much, Andrew. I love you too. <laughs> you have to hide. It, it's okay. It's just a patrol. No one knows I'm here. Are you sure? Yes. No one saw me. Andrew, we, we can't do this. If someone finds us, we... I don't care. But it's wrong! I don't care what they say. No one can tell me the way I feel is wrong. This feeling can't be wrong. I love you. And no one can take that away from me. No one! I love you too. This is an invitation to writers to explore the medium of sound, the theatre of the mind, to create a one-hour radio play in English. Visit the SAFM website on www.safm.co.za for more information. Or... Send an email to playwright at safm.co.za and stand a chance to win 50,000 rand. Sick of always missing your favorite SAFM shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free podcast service that allows you to access them directly from your cell phone, PC or tablet whenever and wherever you're ready to listen. Go to safm.co.za and click on podcast. This takes you to the SAFM page on iono.fm. Follow at iono.fm on Twitter or like it on Facebook for regular updates. You never have to miss your favourite shows. SAFM podcasts powered by iono.fm. Well, so much for fracking. Just one of the many environmental concerns here in South Africa as well as elsewhere in the world as we move into 2015. But next, something that's seen in some circles as a beacon of hope in terms of renewable energy, it's wind farming. And last year, I went to the official launch of the Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm. Thank you for answering our prayers to bless the wind farms, the new renewable energy of Father, the new way of giving and providing energy to the people. And today you are answering with the sweet sound of the raindrops, because rain is pure. Rain is a sign of blessing. Chief Michael Williams blesses the Jeffreys Bay wind farm in the rain. It's the occasion of the official launch. The South African police choir is there, dignitaries from near and far, and MC Derek Watts is in full swing. Please let's give Chief Michael Williams a huge round of applause. Konyama! The lion of the Koha. It means the lion rose. And so the wind farm rose today. It means the Koha stand under the tremendous roar of the lion. That's why we are called Kam the lion of the Koha. With the intros and blessings over, the chief continues. The wind farm is a blessing that was revealed through the Western way of thinking, advanced in technology and experience. The Koha Wind Farm 
so that will benefit for the years to come. So who's behind this benefit, this blessing? There's a cost of thousands, literally. This, this is a private sector investment. So there's a, a lot of different parties that are bound together by a series of contracts. Our first and most important contract is, is with government itself. That gave us, in a way, the license to build it and the power offtake agreement with Eskom. Then you have to think about the capital that pays for its construction, and that comes from a consortium of lenders and a consortium of investors. Globalik is the lead uh, majority investor in that, and another very important investor is, is Mainstream, the developer who brought this project up through the permitting stage. Then, of course, there's the equipment providers, Siemens. We are using Siemens turbines one of the world-leading turbine suppliers, and they will continue to maintain the wind farm for the first 10 years. Then there are many, many subcontractors, local and international, who, who've assisted in, in putting this together. So it, it really is a cost of thousands. Mark Pickering, he's general manager of Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm. And the cost of thousands at the Action Pack launch included a great number from Ireland. So in Ireland uh, we have a company of about 160 people uh, and in South Africa we have a team of 40 people here and I imagine probably 10 of those people are Irish but we have people who come here on a fairly regular basis to support our construction team during the execution of our projects. Declan Deasy is from the Irish company Mainstream Renewable Power but it was Eddie O'Connor, founder and CEO of Mainstream who had the biggest story of his own wind journey. Well in 1989 I was running this company in Ireland which is a peat company. It was owned by the government, is owned by the government. And I was appointed chief executive there in 1987. By 1989, I realized that CO2 was destroying the planet and the environment we'd grown up in. So I tried to balance the ticket because we were big polluters. We were burning a lot of this biomass and we were releasing 10 million tons of CO2 to make electricity. So I built the first wind farm in Ireland in, in 1992 I tried to get the company to have a wind division, and I had a wind division, but I had no support from the government, who were the owner. So I left that company in 1996 and set up Airtricity in 1997. We borrowed £25,000, and it got sold 11 years later for €1,800 million. Euros. So that was great. So we built Ireland's first, well, the, the modern wind farm was, was in the year 2000. And then we went to Northern Ireland and to Scotland. Uh, we built the first offshore wind farm in the British Isles in Ireland in 2003. And then that company, Airtricity, got sold in 2008. And with the money that we made from that, we, we set up Mainstream. There's been a number of significant developments in all that process. One of them was wind has, has got a lot cheaper and more reliable. The turbine has got bigger. It's able to access higher wind speeds. The capacity factors have gone from 25 up to 40%. And solar has come along. Solar is the big game changer in the world today. It used to be five times more expensive than it is now. Oh, it used to be 30 times more expensive 20 years ago, but right now it's almost competitive with wind. It's cheaper than new coal, and it's going to get a lot cheaper. And by 2020, it'll be cheaper than wind. So how did they come to get this contract? We bid a wind price, and we have to get the wind farm built for that price. And the price that was bid in round three was 0.76 of a rand. The government has, has looked at coal and found out that Medupi and Kusile uh, will produce coal at 0.99 rand. A lot more than that if you start including a price for the carbon. So wind is between 20% and 40% cheaper than new coal. So if you're planning a future, which South Africa has to do, you can't look to the past. You can't look and see how, how expensive or how cheap is old coal that's there for 50 years. 
that's irrelevant. Doesn't matter. If if somebody says to you, wind is, is dearer than coal, you say, oh, okay, build me a new old coal plant then. And the minute they start putting capital cost, you know, modern risk management into place, that coal plant will be the same price as Medupia Cusile. And so wind is 25% now cheaper without a tax on carbon. You don't get very many places in the world where you can compare new coal and new wind because there's very little new coal being built, except in China. Almost none, maybe a bit in India. And that, that's going to have to stop entirely or we just kill the planet. We're 401 parts per million in the atmosphere now of CO2. Our species emerged at 270 parts per million. We'll have breached the 450 parts per million you know, in another 20 years. So we've got 20 years to sort ourselves out and start doing renewables. And are they working on this anywhere else in the world? We're working in Chile, where we're the biggest, we're the biggest developer here. We're the biggest developer in Chile. We're the biggest independent developer offshore in, in Europe. Uh, we're in the United States and Canada as well, and a little bit in Ireland. And we will be in a lot of other African countries and Latin America, Central America. So, you know, we're, we're growing steadily, building, roughly speaking, a thousand megawatts this year. And from here on in, we'll be doing the same thing. Meanwhile, back in South Africa, how did it get going here? These kind of programs, renewable power projects, generally only happen where there's an enabling public policy environment. Those things often take a while to, do, to come to fruition. So I think the seeds of this lie in, in the energy policy that was adopted in the post-apartheid South Africa, where we moved away from a policy of just focusing on energy security to a policy that had a broader set of goals, which included providing energy for all, most importantly, but also um, taking care of the way we do that. So the impact that energy systems have on the environment became a, a big factor in policy. And this has had many successive stages, including our adoption as, as a country of some targets around what carbon we admit into the atmosphere. And the fact that South Africa was hosting a meeting of the Conference of the Parties in Durban in 2011 was a, a big driver behind getting this program going because we needed as a country to have something to show. So in what was probably a, a record for a government procurement process, the tender went out in August, the bids came in uh, in November and the results were announced in December in time for this conference of the parties in, in Durban. And uh, we were very pleased to emerge from that with three projects and this is one of them today. And um, yeah, it's been constructed since then in, in 18 months. Uh, Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm is one of the first very large wind farms to be built in the country and is, is presently the largest on the continent, built on time, on budget, uh, with zero safety incidents in, in the course of the construction, which is an amazing record given that you have over 700 people working on site, many of whom were first time in a large infrastructure project with no experience. So um, we're extremely proud of this outcome and, and our opportunity to celebrate it today. Sure, sure, lots to celebrate. But why here? Why this spot? Well, of course, that's the key, the key thing you look for when you want to build a wind farm is where does the wind blow? And, and you know, Port Elizabeth is known as the windy city, so it was a logical place to start looking. Then you need a good site, with, which is buildable, and you need a grid connection, which is key. And uh, we, we have a site here which has a distribution line running through it that was an easy connection. It also has the national road running through it, and, and so the major components came into the port 
just north of Port Elizabeth, the Kuche uh, Port, and came down the, the national road. So that was an easy logistics process. So all of these things lead up, up, up to a very buildable, very good wind farm. But as renewable businesses go, it's not alone. Well, this is the first, it is called bid window uh, or, or round of projects. We, we, we were from the first round and there were 27 projects from that, um, of which the, the bulk was solar. I think there were eight uh, wind projects in round one. And there's been another five or six in, in round two and round three. Uh, in all, there's 60 renewable projects that are, have been uh, awarded a license uh, so far, and there's a fourth round that's going to take place in, in August, and we'll probably see another 15 or so come out of that. And the expecta expectation is government will run another round every year for the foreseeable future, and perhaps even increase the allocation uh, given to renewable energy. So. Yes, it's just the start. In world terms, I think South Africa ranks 12th at the moment uh, on, on the wind industry log, uh, which is not bad given that we were, <laughs> we were pretty much at zero a couple of years back. So um, we've managed to leapfrog many other countries. We're definitely the leading hotspot in Africa for wind and for solar. And um, the, the, yeah, the future is bright for this industry. Despite the optimism, though, it is an industry that's been criticised for, amongst other things, being a bit of a blight on the landscape. <laughs> well, I'm a bit biased, aren't I? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an engineer and I see beauty in, in these structures. I certainly, uh, if I have to compare them to other forms of power generation, I do think they are a particularly graceful and non-intrusive form of power generation if you, if you think about coal mining and the kind of impact that that can have on the environment. So. Yes, of course, all forms of, of development and, and infrastructure will have some impact on the environment, and, and it's a matter of degree. Uh, the visual impact is, is there, and it a lot really depends on the eye of the beholder, but in my view, they, they've added something to the landscape. Well, fair enough. But it's also said that the turbines themselves are a huge threat to birds. It's not true. Think of how high birds fly. I mean, th there's a definite height at which all birds fly. So the higher you go, actually, you miss the low-flying birds. And then the only thing you really have to watch out for is a migration pathway. And I've seen the eider duck, for instance, off the coast of Germany. They fly north at a certain time, from Germany up towards the Arctic Circle. And they just plotted, they tagged and plotted the birds. And, and those, they used to go in a big phalanx like that. And then there's this Horn's Reef pro project like that. So they come up like that, then they go like that, and then... And so on. So you see, birds are much cleverer than people give them credit for. They can see a wind turbine, they can hear it, and most of them choose not to commit Harry Carry. The NIMBYs are the people behind all the NIMBYs and the, and the coal and the oil industry are behind what you hear about birds, bird slaughter and that. I mean, we've all seen pictures, and I know if you build wind farm in a certain place, like there was a Tarifa in Spain, it was built on a dump. And so the vultures used to feed the carrion and they'd feed on the, on, on the remains of my dump. And then in low wind speeds, they take off very slowly. And there was actually a picture in Windpower Monthly of a, uh, one of the vultures being hit by a blade of a turbine. But of course, if the wind is higher, they go up like that. So the solution was very simple. Don't do away with the turbine. Don't do anything like that. But don't have it come on at, at three metres a second. Have it come on at 4.5 metres a second. Now you, you lose very little production and the birds are well up there by the time that they get to the wind turbine so and there's no more vultures being killed but uh, eddie o'connor does admit that some winged creatures are vulnerable the indiana bat is a particular problem and nobody knows why they fly 
so close to turbines, so really close to turbines. And you just have to be mindful of that and not locate beside the colony of Indiana bats, you know. Nobody, we're saving nature, you know. That's what we're doing. But how are things back in Ireland? It's a country well known for its green rolling farmland, so is it an industry that's in demand? Indeed it is, yes. Uh, we have probably some 1,200 megawatts of wind farms installed on a 5,600 megawatt system. And we're looking to increase that penetration of renewables onto the grid all the time. So wind plays a very important role in our energy mix in, uh, in the Ireland. So you build the roads and the wind turbines are installed. Um, so there really is very little impact on the farming land. In fact, in some cases, farmers quite welcome uh, wind turbines onto the land because um, infrastructure allows them to access areas that are their farm that previously may not have had such good access. Also, most landowners typically get a rental payment from the from the wind farm um, over the life of the project. So that generates another source of income for farmers, which allows them to invest in their livestock and in their buildings and in their their farm infrastructure. So farmers typically do welcome it, and it it doesn't impact their ability to farm the land whatsoever. It's quite conducive. Animals sometimes like to uh, to cozy up beside the wind turbines for shelter and whatnot. So it's uh, it's. They quite uh, mutually coexist very happily. Well, good news was that eventually the rain stopped and we got an opportunity to see the wind farm up close for ourselves from the safety of a bus. We started an 18-month construction programme in November 2012, which is a fairly impressive turnaround time to build what is a, a power plant that is standing today. Leo Quinn of Mainstream giving us the running commentary. Jeffreys Bay is a large site, 3,000... 700 hectares of land that's comprising of eight different farmers who all uh, agreed to be part of the project and, and are signed up to the project by a, a long-term 20-year lease. These roads are in some places 10 metres wide and they're designed to the specific dimensions that Siemens require in order to get the abnormal loads and lorries to deliver the components in because some of the, the trailers and the trucks involved are so very, very big. So finally, we got to witness the great big sculptural blades spinning in the wind. But meanwhile, back at the launch function, the band played on. And the celebrations started winding down. In conclusion, I wish you back to the year US President Barack Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. Critics at the time argued that he hadn't actually done anything yet to justify the award. My understanding, however, is that Obama won the award because he was able to restore hope to a nation. I believe that hope is exactly what the Jeffreys Bay Wind Farm and other similar developments have brought to Koha and its people. For this, I thank you. We look forward to a long and mutually beneficial relationship that will grow not only the economy of Koha, but of South Africa as a whole. I thank you. Thank you. Executive Mayor Boy Kiorat. So, will it make a difference to the people of Koha? Tabisa Wani from the local municipal Eastern Cape Development. Yes, it will impact in the sense that, first of all, the skills development, the skills that is transferred around the renewable energy to our locals, and they are not only from Koha, they are from the surrounding areas within the Eastern Cape. 
So those are new skills that we never thought to tap into. So that's number one. Number two was to make sure that our SMMEs, they position themselves for other wind farms to come or other renewable energy projects. Because this one was one of the first where we learned from. That's the impact. So it was an eye-opener for the local SMME. And the other thing that is important was to do a gap analysis of our capacity. Because when they arrived, we didn't know that our skills don't match the demand. So we get to do an audit of our skills so that we can try to build on it the capacity of our local skills so that we can develop that industry. Otherwise, if there's no human development in any economy, it won't be an economy. So the infrastructure exists because the human is there, so that the human must benefit. So true skills, true ent enterprise development, that's where we see the impact. And will it bring in the tourists? Actually, Nancy, that's happening already. We have people stopping on, on the national road, which I really wouldn't encourage. Uh, so what we're going to do is set up a visitor's centre, and one will be able to pull off the national road and, and drive in and park comfortably. And we have on the ground a blade, and each of these blades, is uh, they, they look very slender up in the sky, but when they're on the ground, you appreciate just how large they are. It's 49 meters long and it's about 6 meters wide at its widest point. So you'll be able to walk up and touch that and, and get a sense of it. And we will have um, some signage and information about how wind power works. And um, we really want to encourage schools to come along, have a look yeah, and spread the word about, about what this new form of energy uh, is all about. Which for South Africa can only be a good thing.
That was Going With The Wind, a documentary on the Jeffreys Bay wind farm, and it was first heard on SAFM Literature. Well, that's it. It brings us to a close for the show tonight, where we will be back next week with a brand new Enviro show. So thanks very much to the team. That's Kim Winter and Rob Parkin, and I'm Nancy Richards. And next up, it's time for a little bit of music and news here on SAFM. <laughs>